From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Life in Southern California is dramatically different than it was just before the weekend. Schools are closed, restaurants, bars, and theaters are closing or dramatically changing their practices. Churches and synagogues canceled or downsized services, and employers are encouraging staff to work from home. It's unlike anything we've experienced in our lifetimes. We'll talk about the psychology of this dramatically different world and continue our daily Q&A with a noted epidemiologist. It's Air Talk coming up right here after NPR News on 89.3 KPCC. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. I anticipate we have a larger than typical audience for Air Talk today. Not necessarily a good thing when we tend to think of that, because many of you are working from home today, have your children who are home from school, and life as we knew it, uh, even Friday of last week, has changed dramatically since. We're going to be talking about the psychological aspects of this upheaval in our lives, the kinds of social distancing uh, that's now required of us and that uh, some of us were doing even before we heard Governor Newsom and local officials talking about the need for it. A little bit later in the program, we'll talk with those of you who are in the hospitality business, working for restaurants, bars, uh, hotels, uh, nightclubs, uh, other places that are closing or significantly curtailing uh, public uh, access as a result of COVID-19. We'll hear what you have to say about the planning for dealing with limited or no customers at your locations. And we're continuing with our daily update on COVID-19 with an epidemiologist to answer your questions about the virus and about the public health practices that surround it. We're at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. With me is UCLA School of Public Health Professor of Medicine, Dr. Timothy Klausner. He uh, studies applied epidemiology and the control of infectious diseases, and he frequently advises the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institutes of Health, and the World Health Organization. Dr. Klausner, thank you for being with us today. We appreciate it uh, very much. Um, first of all, can you share with us uh, just what's going on um, with with your daily life uh, and, and UCLA in the wake of all these orders that have come down? Sure. Well, the hospital systems throughout Los Angeles County have been actively uh, preparing. Um, They've increased their uh, staffing and response team. There's been um, regular uh, meetings um, for all the different uh, divisions of the hospitals, and there's been a substantial amount of uh, planning and preparedness activities. 
All right. Let's talk about um, some promising news. There is a vaccine that it's getting uh, its first clinical trial in Washington state today. Can you share with us um, how this has been so quickly developed and, and what the hopes are around this this first version of a vaccine? Sure. And I want to clarify one thing. This is Dr. Jeffrey Klausner. Uh, Timothy is my cousin. Oh, okay. Thank you for the correction. Our apologies. <laughs> and uh, so the vaccine was started in what's called a phase one safety trial. So before we um, make vaccines publicly available for uh, prevention, it's very important to demonstrate they're safe, they work in an ideal situation, and then they work in the field. And those are the three different phases, safety, efficacy and field effectiveness. Uh, And uh, do we know how many people are going to be uh, taking part in this trial? So usually in a safety study, it's uh, modest. So maybe maybe 20 people um, or, you know, two or three groups of 10. And then once it's demonstrated to be safe, then it moves into the efficacy phase of, okay, do people develop the antibodies that they expect? And that may be, um, you know, 50 to 100 people. And then when we want to employ a large vaccine trial, then that trial will be in several hundreds. All right. Let's talk about uh, the concerns over um, spread in bars, restaurants, public places, the um, CDC with uh, the uh, request that people not take part in any social gatherings of more than 50 individuals. Um, what, what's the rationale for that 50-person threshold? Well, so when we respond to an epidemic, we start off with awareness, which is where we were a few weeks ago. We make people aware of how it's spread and what the concerns are in terms of the actual disease. Then we move into personal behavior change recommendations around, you know, don't go in at work if you're sick, stay home. If you're sick, avoid sick people, protect yourself uh, with coughing and sneezing, proper etiquette. And then the third phase is what we're in now is a social distancing where we try to um, keep people separate to reduce person-to-person transmission. And that can work um, by having people work at home, by, um, you know, reducing access to different uh, social uh, venues like uh, businesses and, um, in in some cases, uh, reducing schools. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner of UCLA School of Public Health joining us. If you have questions about COVID-19, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or our AirTalk page, kpecc.org. You can also ask a question via Twitter, at AirTalk, or posting on our AirTalk Facebook page, 866-893-5722. I also want to stress that we have suspended our spring member drive uh, and our regular pledge breaks during the course of that drive because of of the need to cover in depth COVID-19 and the effects on all of our lives. But I do want to stress that we still need to raise a million dollars 
during this period of fundraising on KPCC. Now, we are only uh, just about uh, a third of the way there. So please, uh, we're less than a third of the way to where we need to be. I ask you for your financial support. I won't spend much time on this because we have important information to discuss, but I do want to encourage you to please call us and make your contribution at 866 888 5722-866-888-5722 or click and join at kpcc.org. Please support this kind of in-depth coverage of COVID-19 on AirTalk today and, of course, throughout our regular schedule here on 89.3. Once again, we're talking with epidemiologist from UCLA, Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. In um, people determining what sorts of interactions are safe, what should they keep in mind when going to the supermarket, going to a restaurant to do a takeout meal, uh, getting together with friends in small groups? What sorts of things do people need to keep in mind? Well, I think the key thing is that, you know, people need to be obviously washing their hands. They need to be practicing good etiquette in terms of uh, coughing and sneezing. Uh, we know that the virus can uh, last for a few hours, but just a few hours on, you know, tables and uh, doorknobs and um, chair handles, um, armrests, etc. So people should be, you know, wiping those down on a uh, regular basis, particularly if they have guests or, you know, people that they um, um, you know, haven't seen recently uh, with any kind of, you know, um, um, you know, bleach type wipe or hydrogen peroxide wipe. So uh, we know that the, you know, virus is, is transmitted relatively easily. It's not as easily transmitted as influenza, but, you know, definitely transmitted person to person. What's the rationale for uh, asking people 65 and older uh, to stay at home as much as possible? Uh, is there any evidence that they're more likely to get the disease? We, we know that they can be more vulnerable because of age and particularly of their underlying conditions, but are they at any higher risk of contracting the virus? So that's a good question. I mean, you're right. We've definitely seen that people who are 65 and older are much more likely to have uh, severe consequences. So the data from China and what we're seeing in Italy is that the uh, severe disease requiring hospitalization and ventilation is more common in those over 65. It doesn't appear that there's any difference in the ability to acquire infection. Um, so it's just really about their immune response and their lack of immune response in people with chronic diseases, people on immune suppressive therapy, older people, that immune response does not clear the infection as it does quickly in a young person. MG writes on our AirTalk page, kpcc.org, what if one has to take a, a, a domestic flight? What, what do you recommend for cutting the odds of exposure through air, when you're air, doing air travel? Okay, well, I mean, basically, um, you know, you can't really control your seating, but ideally, um, if you could seat, you know, um, more distant from other people, um, I advise people to bring on, you know, some kind of wipes to wipe down 
the um, seating area and uh, chair. There's absolutely no recommendations to wear a mask. There's no science that says that masking health, healthy people has any any benefit. And it's really about just trying to maintain that three to six foot distance from others. All right. Beth uh, writes on the page, uh, what are your recommendations for small private practice? Uh, Beth's an optometrist, but wondering should routine eye exams be rescheduled for patients who are not at risk? Yeah, so there's no real recommendations now not to, you know, continue to do uh, medical care. Um, I think, you know, people are uh, just increasingly avoiding, you know, medical offices and waiting rooms. I mean, these uh, current um, social distancing interventions are having a devastating impact on all sorts of businesses, uh, disrupting lifestyles. You know, honestly, um, you know, the evidence for the benefit is actually quite uh, limited. Um, the evidence from the harm, I think, is going to be uh, quite uh, dramatic financially uh, for many people. But, you know, right now, um, you know, there's no recommendations that people should not be seeking their routine preventative care. And in medical offices, people should just be practicing good hygiene practice. We're talking with Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, UCLA School of Public Health. He's professor of medicine who studies applied epidemiology and control of infectious diseases. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Richard in Pacific Palisades, you're on Air Talk. Hi, good morning. Good morning. My question is, um, if we're, with all the social distancing that we're doing, uh, what is the hope with the virus? Is the virus going to go dormant? Will it mutate into something else less harmful? What, where do we see that going? This will certainly curtail the spread of the virus, but does the virus just continue or will it die out? What, what are we hoping for? All right, Richard, Dr. Klausner. Right. So remember, this virus was only recently introduced into humankind, probably sometime in November. And um, there's only known human to human transmission. There's no real intermediate host reservoir. It does live. It does exist in the bat population, um, but unlike influenza, it doesn't exist in waterfowl or in you know swine or pigs or or chickens. So it's very unlikely to persist, you know, past this uh, spring. And with the other uh, um, coronavirus outbreaks like SARS or MERS, there were specific introductions. And then with the prevention measures in place, it went away. So I'm not anticipating that this is going to uh, persist actually that long. And we've seen, uh, you know, dramatic declines in South Korea, in Singapore, in China. Cases went up and then cases went down. And that's usually what we see with these type of epidemics. How much of that has to do with social distancing and how much with changes in the weather? Could warming have anything to do with that? Yeah, there's actually good evidence from researchers at the University of Maryland that um, temperature and humidity can, play, can uh, play an important role. And if you look at, you know, the distribution of outbreaks now, um, you see that they're in pretty narrow latitude where there's, you know, temperature in the uh, 40s, low 50s, moderate humidity, and we don't see any substantial outbreaks in more tropical areas. So I think as the northern hemisphere moves more into spring and summer time, we will see a 
decrease in cases. Uh, we have free animal doctor tweeting at AirTalk. Uh, can you discuss COVID-19 is not transmittable from your dog or cat to you? Dr. Klausner? Right. So there was, you know, a couple of rare cases where some uh, pets have been identified as, um, you know, positive as carriers, but it doesn't appear that you know, pets are playing a substantial role in maintaining transmission. All right. Jose in San Diego, you're on Air Talk with UCLA's Dr. Jeffrey Klausner. Good morning, doctor. Uh, my question is, how is this virus affecting asthmatic children? Uh, we all hear about probably people with underlying uh, illnesses, but mainly older people, 60, 65 and older. But how does this affect uh, asthmatic children? Good question, Dr. Klausner. Sure. So the data we have from China, where there's over 80,000 cases, is that the um, disease severity in those under 15, regardless of other conditions in those under uh, 15, was very mild or asymptomatic. So children, for different reasons, uh, seem to have very mild cases, if any symptoms whatsoever, regardless of their uh, medical status, as far as we know right now. Robert in Buena Park asks, how long can we expect the clinical trial for the new vaccine to take? And then once it's approved, how long would it take for there to be widespread availability of a vaccine? Right. So vaccine trial development definitely takes at least 12 months. So now that we've started the phase one, took us a couple months to get to this phase one. Now that we're in uh, phase one, we can expect uh, another 12 months. Certainly, if it looks promising, you know, from some preliminary data at month six, there'll be some discussions about how to amp up manufacturing. The uh, U.S. government um, has the ability to create contracts with manufacturers and enable manufacture and distribution of the vaccines. Um, ultimately, you know, how it will become available and d distributed in the general population remains to be seen. And also people have to um, get vaccinated. Currently, only about 50 percent get the influenza vaccine on a regular basis. And influenza kills 22,000 people. It already killed 22,000 people this year in the United States. We'll continue our conversation with UCLA professor and physician Dr. Jeffrey Klausner. We're taking your calls about COVID-19 at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org, back in just one minute. Later this hour on Air Talk, the psychological factors of such a dramatic uh, and almost overnight change in our lives. We'll be taking your calls, but first we talk about COVID-19 with epidemiologist Dr. Jeffrey Klausner of UCLA joining us. The U.S. Surgeon General said earlier today the number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. has reached the level Italy recorded a couple weeks ago, a sign that infections are expected to rise here as the government's stepping up testing. And, of course, we're seeing financial markets continuing to fall dramatically. 
Italy. Two weeks ago, Italy had 1,700 coronavirus cases, 34 reported deaths at that time. Now Italy has an estimated 25,000 cases and more than 1,800 deaths. Here in the U.S., we've had about 3,800 cases of coronavirus. More than 65 people have died. Dr. Klausner, do you agree with the the Surgeon General's analysis that we're, we're on a similar trajectory as Italy? I think that's a very dangerous comparison. So the cases in Italy have been highly concentrated in the Lombardy region of northern Italy, around Milan and other uh, cities up there. Um, Italy is one of the oldest populations in the world, a second oldest demographic, actually. And, you know, comparing the overall U.S. population, over 320 million, with one uh, region in Lombardy, which, um, you know, maybe is about uh, 10 to uh, 15 million, uh, those are not comparable. Um, We really need to look at what's happening locally. Each epidemic is local. So Seattle, um, Santa Clara County, Los Angeles uh, County right now uh, still only has um, about 69 cases and one death in a county of uh, 10 million. So while we do expect numbers to increase as testing capacity increases and numbers will go up, um, comparing uh, the United States overall with the regional Lombardy is not appropriate. Uh, Julie in Long Beach says, I'm a dental hygienist. Obviously, I work close to patients. Uh, I don't know what the recommendations are for us. Most dental offices are remaining open, but I do feel worried about going to work with patients. Dr. Klausner, uh, any words of advice for Julie? Yeah, so right now there are no recommendations um, to restrict preventive care or uh, medical practice. I think it's important for people to Remember that, you know, for otherwise young, uh, healthy people under the age of 65, this is a mild cold, and coronaviruses are the second most common cause of cold. So uh, symptoms are likely to be uh, particularly uh, not uh, severe. What we're trying to do, or what others are trying to do with this um, social distancing and a lot of the panic, unfortunately, that's ensued, is protect older people and those who are uh, vulnerable. So we can expect that younger, healthy people uh, may get infected, but the idea is to slow down the number of new cases and uh, protect older people who can have much more severe consequences. Dr. Klausner, we've been hearing about shortages at hospitals uh, and not just the uh, specimen collection kits for COVID-19 testing, but things like gloves uh, or even masks. Uh, Do you have any updated information about the availability of those necessary supplies? Uh, Generally, uh, current hospitals in Los Angeles have adequate supplies. Um, The CDC has made new recommendations in terms of what kind of uh, personal protective equipment that health providers uh, should use and uh, simplified the type of masks and simplified uh, the type of um, protective equipment, and that's made uh, more equipment um, uh, um, available. And then, uh, you know, supply chains are starting, and we expect the supply chains to start to uh, come back, uh, particularly from China, as a large proportion of the population now is going back to work as their epidemic has essentially ended. 
All right. And to your knowledge, hospitals do have specimen collection kits available because I've just been hearing anecdotally from people uh, at different hospitals that they're, they're short. Right. So there's a little difference perhaps between specimen collection kits, which is a swab and a test tube, and testing capacity. So testing capacity is increasing uh, every single day. The large commercial uh, laboratories um, have high throughput uh, testing available. Academic uh, medical centers um, are increasing their capacity. Yes, you know, this capacity took a long time to get going, but now every day there's increased uh, capacity and people are, you know, um, you know, figuring out ways how to uh, use different, different types of collection kits to do the collection that's necessary. Also, the CDC uh, reduced the recommendation to use two collection kits to one collection kit, and that's made a big difference in the availability of testing. Lorena in Highland Park says, the screening at LAX seems insufficient to me. Frights are coming in from around the world. What degree of screening do you think Dr. Klausner should be mandated? Yeah, I mean, airport screening has uh, long been, uh, you know, a, a challenging intervention. We've all seen the, you know, crowded lines and wonder how could social distancing be happening when people are crowded together in these multi-hour lines. So, you know, ideally you want to do um, self-assessment and have people report any uh, fever or cough um, on their, you know, airline cards before they enter. But obviously there may be some kind of under-reporting there. Um, Many uh, cities around the world have uh, temperature scanners. I used to live and work in South Africa, and I came into the airport on a regular basis, particularly during the swine flu epidemic. Uh, People's temperature would be automatically scanned, and a light would go off for further investigation or assessment if their temperature was elevated. So uh, there is technology available. You know, I really can't comment on why that technology has not been implemented. We have a listener uh, who just posted uh, the California Dental Association has just issued a strong recommendation to its member dentists uh, recommending that dentists practicing in California voluntarily suspend non-essential or non-urgent dental care for the next 14 days. We have confirmed that posting on the California Dental Association website, again, strongly recommending California dentists voluntarily suspend suspend non-essential or non-urgent dental care for the next two weeks. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, thank you so much, sir, for being with us and answering listener questions. We appreciate it very much. My pleasure. Best of luck. Thank you. He's UCLA professor of medicine in the School of Public Health. He studies applied epidemiology and the control of infectious diseases and frequently advises the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the National Institutes of Health, and the World Health Organization. With all the recommendations for people uh, engaging in social distancing, it means that many social outlets that people used to enjoy and used to be able to have as a part of stress relief and fellowship with others have been, been significantly curtailed. This is an opportunity for you to share with us some of the ways that you're trying to deal with that if you are engaging in, in social uh, isolation. And 
and you're keeping yourself away from large groups. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. I know that even physical distancing can be challenging for people. Um, You're used to maybe hugging someone, a family member that you're close to, and and now you're not engaging uh, in that kind of physical touch that is a regular part of your life. What are the ways that you are coping with that? 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page kpcc.org. Uh, joining us is uh, Diana Concanon, who is Associate Provost at Alliant International University, uh, a private uh, university in California. She is a psychologist who's worked in crisis response for over a decade. Dr. Concanon, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you for this opportunity. Let's talk first of all about some of the the things that we're seeing people express behaviorally as a result of stress. Uh, hoarding is 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 a symptom we're seeing people, uh, you know, buying toilet paper without reason or standing in super long lines as as though things are not going to be available. Um, what it, what is the psychological cause of people behaving in this way? Yes. So in many ways, the behaviors and reactions that we're seeing during the current crisis are consistent with those we've seen in the past. You know, as you mentioned, the hoarding in the markets, both of of food and of cleaning supplies, we're also seeing a rise in gun sales in of alcohol in this case um now that marijuana is legal we're seeing a rise in that there is a, something different about this current pandemic it's the heightened level of intensity the escalating international response its duration and the extreme level of uncertainty is being reflected in the responses of individuals. So one of the ways people cope with uncertainty is to try and gain a level of control. All of the behaviors that we're seeing tend to reflect efforts to do that. Um, They're not necessarily the most productive, but they are predictable. And the majority of us will work through this experience with fairly basic psychological support, whether that come from connections with family and friends or with professionals accessible through insurance, employee assistance programs, student assistance programs, even our community mental health agencies or community health centers. But I think one of the things, Larry, that you had brought up originally is is critically important as well. We use the term in public health of social distancing. And it is vital that we don't confuse social distancing with social isolation, which is very um, compromising to one's mental health. It is really important that in addition to learning how to stream Netflix or deciding what books to read, should one need to stay at home, and especially if one needs to self-quarantine, we also know how we are going to stay connected to those that are important to us, as this is extremely critical to our mental health and well-being, both short and long-term. We're talking with uh, psychologist Diana Concanon of Alliant International University. Again, our lines are open for you. And one of the things I'm, I'm interested in is 
What are you doing to reach out to other people to provide health? Is there uh, an older person or older individuals that maybe you're doing shopping for, that you're talking with more frequently, checking in on? What are some of the ways that you're trying to be helpful to others or that people have reached out to you in a way to be helpful as way? There are a lot of ways of trying to get a sense of control in our lives, one of which is going, you know, buying flats of toilet paper. Another is finding ways of connecting and offering support to other people uh, in the face of of the uncertainty of COVID-19. 866-893-KPECC. 866-893-5722. Or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Dr. Kincannon, can you elaborate a little bit about uh, the importance of reaching out to others? Absolutely. That that sense of connection is often what keeps us in the here and now, which helps us to cope with the uncertainty and that anxiety that the uncertainty produces in many of us. I have seen very um, effective ways for people to reach out because often we're also still trying to juggle our work commitments, our professional commitments, our school commitments, and for many now, heightened family commitments if you have children that are no longer engaged in school activities at their their schools during the day. So it, it seems as if our obligations have increased rather than decreased during this time. Consequently, there's in some ways less time to engage in these connecting behaviors. So what I have seen people do is group texts, for example, where it's a simple check-in, which means a, a great deal to many people who don't necessarily have wide social networks. Of course, telephonically connecting with people is important. We have technologies now, the FaceTime technologies, Zoom, Skype, ways of actually seeing each other if we can't be physically present with each other that are qualitatively close to the same thing as being with that person. And any opportunity we have to avail ourselves of those technologies, I think, is is critically important right now. We're talking with psychologists from Alliant International University, associate provost for the school, Diana Concanon. And again, I'd like to hear from you how you're navigating the psychological stressors of COVID-19 and the dramatic changes in our daily lives uh, that the virus has brought. Also, what are the ways that you're reaching out to people who might be housebound during this time? And are you connecting up with people using technology in ways that you haven't in the past. 866-893-5722. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. We're talking about the emotional side of dealing with COVID-19 and people staying home, not going out, not physically meeting up with friends or family members or even going into the office. As previously, what are the ways that you're managing that so that you don't feel isolated from the rest of the world and that you're not lacking in the kind of mutual support that we offer each other throughout the course of a typical day? 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. A chance for you to share maybe some advice with fellow listeners how you're handling all of this. James joining us from Pomona. You're on AirTalk. 
Uh, we actually, my church had to cancel um, all Sunday schools and Bible studies and all social gatherings outside of uh, liturgy services. So yesterday we decided to use Zoom uh, to catch up with our Sunday school kids and make sure they were doing fine. And uh, uh, it was it was uh, mostly successful. We had a smaller turnout than we were hoping for, but I think they're going to tell their friends that it was a nice get-together. We can see them on camera. They can see us. We can deliver a nice lesson and uh, get the message across to them. And at the same time, check out on them and their parents and their families. And it was very simple. A free app like Zoom makes it very, very simple for us to, to still communicate with our Sunday school kids. So it worked out pretty nicely. James, do you, do you think that for the next few weeks that's something that you'll be able to use to have a connection? Uh, was it satisfying enough? You think people will stay with it? Yeah, and, and we really almost don't have a choice. Our diocese canceled all these meetings and services for um, clears through Easter, uh, and we'll reassess after Easter, and uh, we really don't have a choice. Other, other than using this kind of method, we won't see them at all. We won't know anything about them. So this really is our best option to get to at least see that they're doing okay. And I mean, they're young, uh, Sunday school kids in high school and college, so that's fine. But uh, it's our best method of really just reaching out to them, uh, you know, not necessarily face-to-face, but you can at least see them through the camera, which is different than a phone conversation, I suppose. James, I appreciate your call. Thank you for sharing that. Love to hear from others. If your church or synagogue, I know the Islamic Center of Southern California, for example, um, did Friday prayers Friday afternoon online instead of having people go to Vermont to the uh, to the center so that there wouldn't be a risk potential of spreading the virus. And uh, if you're someone who did uh, Friday prayers online, I'd be interested to hear how that works. Did it was it as emotionally uh, and spiritually satisfying as it would be to be at the mosque itself to do that? Um, if you uh, same with synagogue or with church, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Dr. Diana Concanon it's challenging because so much of worship at, at a house of worship is about being in the same physical space with other people who you have this commonality with whom you're jointly worshiping. And technology is wonderful, but I think it is hard to replicate that. I think you're right. I think the, what James brought up, I'm, I'm very glad that he raised what he had done, is after a few instances of using the technology, people become more comfortable with it and they find ways to connect. It is not a substitute for being with individuals in the same space, but it does um, replicate it to a large extent. And there is a qualitative experience that we can have. And we do get to see each other and we do get to share a virtual space together that is is incredibly important right now. And again, over time, people seem to become much more comfortable with using that technology and with finding ways to connect through that virtual space that are meaningful 
And I think it is important that we continue to, to try to replicate as much as we can if that is the only means available to us. Christina in Inglewood says, I'm a freelance artist and keeping social isolation's been hard mentally. Thankfully, I have my son to help me. But since I'm 65, he doesn't want me to shop for food or go outside. I'm trying to keep cool by doing yoga and keeping calm, but it's hard. Christina, I think speaking for, for many people in that circumstance. Dr. Concanon? Oh, absolutely. That is a very difficult circumstance, especially for for those of us who are accustomed to being active. To restrict our activities is, is something that is very difficult. Finding the alternative activities, you know, such as what she is doing with her yoga, focusing on the, the art, and, and keeping engaged in those things that are available is is very important, especially for vulnerable populations who do have to restrict their activities for their own health and safety. I I think finding those alternatives is very, very important. All right. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. We're talking about the psychological, emotional challenges of um, giving social distance and how that, for so many of us, dramatically changes our lives. Uh, We have Kara with us in Mission Viejo. I understand you're a choir director and a worship leader at your church. So what was yesterday like? Yes, you know, it was interesting because we recorded our music and things beforehand. I actually met with my choir on Thursday before we knew church was going to be canceled, and we recorded audio that we were able to play through a conference call on Sunday, and then we also met on Saturday as a worship team and recorded our music. And it was really interesting because even just the four of us there in the room, we, you know, it was a spiritual moment for us to get together to do that. And then when we played it back in the recording, you know, it's interesting for me to get to actually just sit back and participate, um, which I don't normally get to do. You know, normally I'm focused on what needs to happen in a service. Um, So it was interesting just to lay back and be a participant in that. Yeah. And what kind of feedback have you received in the 24 hours since? Well, you know, I got a couple of comments about, you know, the audio, like, you know, some folks that were thankful for what we did, you know, because I had had to sing solo and stuff for that. But the phone quality was hard, right? So that was kind of our first try um, because, you know, we really only had a day or two notice to, to make that change. Every day we were checking as a church and trying to see, okay, what's happening? We're going to meet. Still. No, we're not going to meet. Okay, now what are we going to do? So every day, and, and my pastor was just saying in the course of a day, everything would change. So now, you know, our next attempts are going to be for next weekend to do some live streaming and some video to try to enhance that experience. Um, but as a church, we're, we're evolving. And I think the good thing here is We've probably not been as forward on some of the technology as we would have liked to be, and we're going to have to catch up really quickly. So I think that there's some benefits that can come out of yeah. it. We're going to be more agile in the future. What about uh, beyond services? I don't know whether you have any prayer gatherings at your church or or other events like that where, where the in-person fellowship is central to the experience of that. And, and um, are, there, are there ways, if that's true, that those are going to be dealt with? Yeah, you know, um, Zoom um, is something that we're starting to use as a church. Um, and there's actually been some organizations that have made access to their, their conferencing um, tools free for churches. So we're looking at using a lot of that. I know that our um, kids group got together on Zoom and did some, you know, like screen time with each other. Um, and I think we're going to be probably continuing to do those type of things. I know today 
as a staff we're meeting later using Zoom. So um, I don't think it's going to be an exact replacement. And I definitely think for some folks, you know, coming to choir or whatever events that they normally would have gone to is something to look forward to in the week and get that fellowship. And that's going to be hard to replace during this period of time. But, you know, we're going to keep figuring out different ways to do that. Um, we're trying to figure out, well, Easter services happen as normal. That's a big concern right now. You know, we're coming into the, the holiest period of the year. And so you've got Holy Week services and things like that. So trying to figure out, okay, yeah. even if service can start before then, how would we prepare for all of it? Kara, I really appreciate you sharing the experience uh, at your church. Kara, in Mission Viejo, we're at 866-893-KPCC. Uh, Dove, in Beverly Wood, uh, share with us how this is affecting your life. Yeah, so um, first of all, I wasn't crying when um, I thought about what I was going to say, but now apparently I am. Um, That's okay. Narcotic. Yeah. Thank you. I started Narcotics Anonymous program 33 days ago. Congratulations. That's great news. Yeah. Thank you so much. I'm sitting here holding my 30-day chip. Um, one of our issues as addicts is we isolate. We don't have communication with people. So um, I found that. I have some amazing people who now apparently I don't get to see. Um, most of our meetings were canceled. Um, there's one place that's still open, but... Um, as addicts, we tend to be kind of selfish, and there's a lot of people I want to see, but I know now that I have to stay away for their sake, not just for mine. I'm on chemo meds, and I do chemo once every six weeks, uh, an infusion. Uh, so I have a compromised immune system, but not being able to go out there and do the volunteer services that I do and see the people that I see and help the newcomers like we're supposed to yeah, um, is kind of really just... Uh, difficult. I went to work this morning uh, thinking everything is fine and left just now um, sitting in my driveway talking to you and I'm just not going to go back. Um, I just can't. So I guess I'm going to reach out to people, call people, talk to people, call my elderly parents in New Jersey and just try to do the best I can to um, help others and be kind throughout this. Um, and anyone else out there suffering with this and just found something good in their life, just know this is going to pass and um, it'll come back. Dove, I really appreciate you sharing your experience and congratulations on on your 33 days of sobriety. That's that's terrific news. And, and I'm sure with the help of, of people around you that you're connected with and who are deeply emotionally invested in you, um, that that's going to continue. Dr. Diana Kincannon, um, you want to say a few words to Dove? I, I do. The, the, firstly, yes, congratulations. I do echo that. I also I want to encourage you in the path that you're taking, the, the level of support that your commitment to continuing to find your support system, even though it is disrupted in the form that you were previously accessing, is so critically important. And your commitment to service is admirable. And that, too, is a form of support. And as I know you have experienced, I can hear it in the way you're expressing yourself. When we serve others, we also do receive back. And continuing to do that is a form of self-care as well. And I encourage you and admire you for what you're doing in that. 
Dove, uh, we we are with you. You've got uh, right now tens of thousands of people who are there, and not just with you, but others who are fairly early on in sobriety. If you've hit a milestone here with your 30th day, and others who are at that point or maybe several years in, uh, we're with you as, as obviously this is a shift in your life socially, and, and you successfully uh, adapt to that. We'll take more of your calls as we continue when we talk about the psychological and the emotional aspects of changing the ways that we connect with other people. We're at 866-893-5722. We'll continue with psychologist Diana Concanon in just one minute. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. LA Mayor Eric Garcetti is out uh, talking with leaders in the grocery uh, world. Uh, the mayor telling Angelino's supply chains are completely uninterrupted. There's no shortage of food, but hoarding is hurting our most vulnerable Angelinos. He's asking L.A. residents to not make a run on supermarkets. He said grocery companies are working to ensure that workers have protective gear as well. And I just want to underscore, you know, Diana Concanon, our, um, our psychological expert who's joining us from Alliant International University, you know, before you engage in in hoarding behavior, just sort of think what you know what's going on with you psychologically. This is, it can be a frightening time. It can be a time of great uncertainty and insecurity, but try not to act out of that and to do something that's not rational and in yours and others' best interests. We're talking with Diana Concanon uh, of Alliant International University. She's associate provost of the private um, group of universities in California. Let's talk with Katie in Santa Monica. Katie, I understand you're an Episcopal priest. How is your parish dealing with this? Well, we tried to do and very successfully did an online service on Facebook Live yesterday. And what was so moving is the live experience. So people could see us in our familiar environment. They were tuning in and parishioners who'd moved away tuned in, people from Pittsburgh, even one couple from Austria. So we had this sense of community that reached out beyond where we normally reach, just in Santa Monica and, and you know, the LA area where people come, but overseas as well. And the comments to one another during the service, the texting back and forth, and then afterwards, both uh, my fellow priest and I were getting pictures uh, of people with their computers people with their kids watching the service on TV. So it convinced us that we're not going to be pre-recording. We're going to be live and help recreate the in-person experience as much as we can online. That's that's great. Uh, Katie, where, uh, which church is yours in Santa Monica? We're at St. Augustine by the Sea. It's on 4th Street between Arizona and Wilshire, but I guess that's moot. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you're everywhere now. Uh, Katie, what about um, most churches have a high percentage of, of older congregants, and are you doing anything particularly, either you or your staff, to reach out to some of your, your older congregants? We are phone calling. We have a surprising number that are comfortable with technology whose kids or grandkids have helped them hook up. 
So we were surprised yesterday at how many watched. We're not a big group. You know, we have about 130 people on a Sunday. So we have a good network of folk who know folk. We're really encouraging the message of this is a time for us to all live into loving our neighbors. This may not be the way we want to love our neighbors. We really want to be in person, but we can't. So let's let's use phones. Let's text. Let's uh, call one another and be at least on voice or FaceTime together as much as we can and with other people we love in our lives. Katie, thank you so much. Are you the rector at St. Augustine? I'm the associate rector. Associate rector. Katie, thank you very much, and we wish your your congregation all the best. That's Katie at Santa Monica, uh, St. Augustine Episcopal Church. Sean in Hollywood, I understand you do cannabis delivery. How's your job changed? Well, it's a job that should should be super chill, and it's become very, very stressful because we are one of the delivery um, services that you can't just drop it at the door. We actually have to have a face-to-face contact with the customer because they have to sign for it legally. And so you're thinking about every time you touch their credit card and every time they touch your credit card terminal or they hand you cash, and then you go back to your car and you think, Am I bringing this all into my car? How should I sterilize my car? It's become really, really stressful. But, you know, of course, ironically, we're busier than ever right now. I I would bet. I would bet um, you're doing very well work-wise in that sense. Sean, I wonder, though, if what you're describing will, over time, become more routinized. You've got to think about all this stuff now because it's, you know, it's it's not just part of your routine. And uh, just real quickly, Diana Kincannon, I've got 30 seconds left, but some of this stuff, the stress will ease over time, won't it? If Yes, we can expect that it will ease over time. This is, again, this is very normal to an abnormal event, as we say in psychological first aid parlance, and individuals tend to adapt. We really do have resilience. All right. I want to thank Dr. Diana Kincannon. She's Associate Provost at Lyon International University with campuses across California and a forensic psychologist. We have much more to come in the second hour of Air Talk. I'm going to be asking for those of you in the hospitality business with restaurants, bars, hotels, a chance for you to share what's going on with your places. Good to have you with us this morning on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Our lives have been turned upside down in so many ways, and we're going to talk about that over the course of this hour. Later on, we'll talk about last night's Democratic candidates debate, Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, and uh, also talk about tomorrow's big four primaries that are taking place and some significant states. Florida, Illinois, Ohio, Arizona, all going to the polls. And we'll talk about um, the significance of uh, the primaries that, at least for now, we're still planning to be held uh, tomorrow. But right now, I'm asking for those of you that work in the hospitality business to join us to talk about what is happening at your business, whether it's one you own or manage 
or one that you work for. And uh, my apologies, because I know today you're probably scrambling, trying to figure out what you're going to do in the wake of the new recommendations and, and the new um, Los Angeles restrictions that have gone into effect. But please, briefly, and I won't keep you on the line too long, share with me how you're dealing with it at your establishment. We're at 866 893 KPCC 866-893-5722 or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Let's briefly check in on Los Angeles County Sheriff Alex Villanueva holding a news conference right now. All right. We'd asked for AirTalk listeners in the hospitality business. How are you coping with the restrictions that were just announced yesterday? Jamil in Upland, I understand you have a coffee shop. What are you doing? Um, well, today we actually closed down our coffee shop just as like an initial kind of reaction. We have a lot of like hourly employees and we've seen a pretty dramatic drop off in our business over the past couple of days as people have been kind of hunkering down, getting staples. We've just really noticed a change in our business. So Seeing that we have a lot of perishable products, you know, milk is something that you can only have but for so long, you know, we're at a really interesting balancing point of like our budget and us trying to make sure that we still have product to serve to customers. So if you're you're closing, are you just completely closing uh, until further notice? Um, tomorrow, we're going to open up for a few hours just to kind of do like some takeout only orders because that's what the CDC recommends. But I mean, we will probably be after this moment, probably close down just indefinitely as we kind of ride out this wave. And how do you handle your food inventory if you're going to do takeout, but you don't necessarily know how many of your usual customers will take advantage of that? Well, right now, when it comes to like, thankfully, coffee, like as a specific item, you know, it's not going to be as fresh like we roast every week to make sure that we have like top quality product you know but i mean once we run out of milk we will restock milk like people will just won't have like whole milk lattes sure like oat milk and milk alternatives they're shelf stable so we are actually able to have like oat milk lattes and almond milk lattes for people while we ride out some of those products and then once we run out of coffee for a little bit we're probably going to hold back on roasting as we kind of see what the cdc recommends i mean i just noticed that new york can Connecticut and New Jersey are on lockdown. So if the same thing happens on the West Coast, it doesn't make much sense for us to continue to roast and add more inventory sure. to our shelves and end up not being able to leave our houses and do commerce in the first place. Jamil, um, have you talked with your landlord about this? I don't know if you if you rent a space for your shop, but is, is that an issue potentially you know, making rent? You know... We thankfully we've been pretty successful, so we should be able to ride this out for a little bit. But we have reached out to our landlord to kind of see what their response is to COVID nineteen. We've yet to hear a response yet, though. Okay, all right, Jamil, good to have you with us. Thanks so much, John, in the South Bay area. Uh, I understand you you work with multiple restaurants in the South Bay. Um, please report to us what's going on with them. Yeah, so obviously we've seen a dramatic decrease in customers coming in um, and we are definitely shifting more towards the delivery side of things as well as curbside uh, pickup, um, which is a great thing. We also have one restaurant that the restaurant side is going to close, but it's also a fish market. So by the standards, we can still sell fresh fish as a market, which is a good sign for us, but everything else is getting shut down slowly and 
And as an antidote, we uh, rode our bikes down to Hermosa Beach Pier yesterday, and it seemed like nothing had changed. Um, the bars and restaurants were about 50% full, but the promenade was full of people. There was everybody out. It just seemed like nothing was different. All right, John, thank you very much. I wonder if that's going to change today or if, you know, this last weekend was the last one where you would see people going out in in bars and socializing that way. Angelo in East Hollywood, you're on Air Talk. Yes, hello. Um, I'm a gig worker here in the hospitality industry in Los Angeles with Patina Catering. Yes, yes. So you've got a lot of different venues. Oh, yes. And until last week, um, after I worked one day for LA Opera, um, events have been canceled. So basically, I'm now unemployed as future events that were scheduled have been put on hold and on the shelf. So it's affected me greatly. And actually, I really wonder about the gravity of the symptoms of the virus itself. So I have some questions about that. Yeah, and I'm sorry, we don't have an expert who can answer your questions on that at this point. But just the thing to keep in mind, Angelo, is that the, the reason that this social distancing is being undertaken isn't... Um, specifically because a given individual is at high risk of getting very, very sick. It's because we have a certain segment of the population that is particularly vulnerable to that and that we all risk spreading it to the vulnerable population the more that we're in close contact with other people. So I just want to stress that it's not necessarily about the risk to a young, healthy person, but about what can happen to other people um, with whom that individual comes in contact. Angela, we're so sorry about uh, the loss of your income as a gig worker, and you're in the company of thousands and thousands of people who are going through this right now, a very difficult time. Rafi in Encino is a Postmates driver, says, I've been to a bunch of restaurants and stores today. Restaurants are empty. I was at a Starbucks in Valley Village. All the tables were cleared off to the side. It was eerie. Grocery stores are a little more hectic. I'm decently busy today doing food delivery. Just want to do whatever I can to help people be able to stay at home. That's Rafi and Encino. Rafi, thank you for, for sharing that. We also have an update that Major League Baseball has announced opening day will be pushed back to mid-May at the very earliest that in accordance with Centers for Disease Control guidelines. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. We'll continue our conversation in just one minute. In other news, a Connecticut man has been charged with threatening to kill L.A. area Congressman Adam Schiff. A 62-year-old man from Torrington, Connecticut, Robert M. Phelps, charged by the federal government with threatening to murder 
member of Congress, Adam Schiff, who represents uh, Burbank and surrounding communities. Also, Canada has announced it will be banning entry of non-residents into the country over concerns of uh, COVID-19. U.S. residents will be temporarily exempted, according to Canadian Prime Minister Trudeau. So Americans, U.S. residents are temporarily being exempted, but there is a general ban of non-residents of Canada being allowed into the country because of concerns about COVID-19. We turn our attention now to older Angelinos and how they're coping with the dramatic change in life because of the CDC's recommendations that Americans age 65 and older um, distance themselves socially so that they lessen the chance of being exposed to COVID-19. We know that uh, being older as well as having underlying physical conditions put someone at higher risk from COVID-19 exposure. With us is Dr. Lisa Gibbs, clinical professor of family medicine and chief of geriatrics and gerontology at the UC Irvine School of Medicine. Dr. Gibbs, we appreciate your being with us. Thank you. Uh, happy to be here to, to talk with you and your listeners. For, you know, for many older people who have very active lives, I mean, my mom is one of these. She's, she's out every day doing volunteer work, serving on boards, getting together with, with groups of friends and people with whom she's working on projects. Um, and there are so many seniors today who live lives like that. And this is going to be a dramatic change. What general advice do you have for those individuals who's, who whose lives are just are going to slow considerably. Right, you're right. This is a huge dramatic shift for, for all of us, and especially our seniors who are especially con- con- encouraging to stay at home. Um, I, I think that, you know, in the short term, it's especially critical, though, that we realize that to maintain our public safety to, you know, it, it, in the most optimal way, we have to realize that at least for the next couple of weeks and maybe longer, we really do need to hunker down. Uh, but there are other ways, I think, to stay in contact with folks. And this is really the time to maximize, you know, our digital um, abilities, our computers, um, our telephones, our audio- audiovisual capabilities. So even if uh, people such as your mom that are volunteering, um, you know, instead maybe finding a way to volunteer by reaching out by telephone instead of in person. All right. And what advice do you have uh, to us who have uh, older people who are who are close to us, important to us, family members or friends? What are some of the ways uh, short of you know being in close quarters with them that we can provide social connection? Well, you know, I think that number one, I would I would encourage uh, folks to to know how they will uh, maintain access with their medical providers. Uh, and again, if if we don't have audiovisual capabilities or FaceTime or something of the like, uh, a telephone is always something we can use. Um, a lot of the healthcare facilities now are converting the inpatient visits or in-person visits into telephone visits. Um, so, number one, access to medical care is is paramount, and um, I would advise uh, seniors to to make sure that they do not wait to the last minute to reorder medications. Um, it would be ideal to have at least you know the next month's um, supply on hand. 
um, and to to be prepared um, to have enough uh, food and staples at least for the next couple of weeks. Um, I think the whole idea for social isolation, excuse me, social distancing, um, is very important to curb the spread in the community, as you know. Um, but we also need to make sure that that doesn't mean social isolation, and there's a big difference. Uh, so this is the time to, to, to really understand how to make contact and maintain human contact without actually seeing people in person. John, in Whittier, I understand you're 66, so you're one of those who's been asked to curtail um, your physical contact with the outside world. How are you adjusting? Well, moment by moment, day by day, um, I'm particularly at risk with bad heart and lung conditions. And um, I'm so thankful for KPCC. I find myself more active on my Twitter and Instagram and even checking Facebook these days. Um, But just um, starting for social interaction, uh, isolation becomes... uh, a byproduct of social distancing when you're limited in your options to begin with. That's it's a very good point. Um, and and John, do you do you have friends with whom uh, you can? It sounds like you're mentioning Facebook and Twitter. You do you do have ways of doing that. But are are your friends who are in your age group are are they also hunkering down somewhat? Um, actually, I'm in a situation where I spend more time with younger people in my current living situation, and um, they're trying to be kind to me and accommodate me, and yet we, my friend and I practiced uh, a low five by bumping our shoes the other day, like, <laughs> you know, video and so on. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I did go out. I went to an art gallery yesterday, and... Uh, but then each time um, I went to shake hands, you know, I find I found myself uh, recoiling, you know. Yeah, yeah. Old habits are hard to break. Yeah, so true. John, I appreciate it. Dr. Lisa Gibbs, uh, your thoughts for John? Um, I would also, you know, I would recommend staying out of public places at this time, especially if you have underlying conditions. Um, and, you know, again, this is the time where, where people might go through their address book and, and call up folks, family and friends that they haven't been in contact with for a long time. Um, And also, you know, social distancing doesn't mean we can't, you know, if you have a yard, go outside and enjoy the the sunshine and or the rain, I guess, if that's the case this week. Um, But getting fresh air and just, you know, enjoying the outdoors is also something that I think can bring some joy to folks that are feeling kind of locked up. With uh, you know so many gyms closing down as as a result of this, um, a lot of older people who go to the gym regularly that's a part of of their physical and mental fitness. Um, some recommendations, Doctor Gibbs, for other ways to get necessary exercise, even if your gym is going to be closing. Absolutely, you, there there are a lot of home exercises that will maintain uh, fitness and tone, you know, either on some of the um, uh, the sites, well, in videos or potentially uh, Netflix or some of the other um, <clears throat> streaming devices that we can use. Um, but, you know, even taking some small weights and, and, and toning our muscles every day, uh, walking around our yards um, and doing some fitness programs in our living room, will go a long way, um, not only to maintain fitness, but uh, keeping us healthy and a little bit more resilient 
um, against uh, against um, getting ill. Our focus is on older Angelinos who've been advised by the Centers for Disease Control if uh, 65 or older, particularly with an underlying health condition, uh, to practice social distancing, avoiding large groups of people, generally staying home as much as possible. If you're reaching out to people that are in that age group, maybe doing shopping for them or just spending more time talking with them on the phone or connecting through social media, let us know about you know some of the advice that you have. If you're someone who's in that age group, what are some of the ways you're finding to alternatively connect with people, um, given that having that sort of face-to-face interaction is uh, recommended against? 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Jeanette in Fullerton, nice to have you with us. I understand you're 68. What are you doing these days? Well, I am self-quarantining. I have a little bit of asthma, but more importantly, I have autoimmune diseases, and I am on a fairly strong infusion to be able to control that. So I am high risk for viruses and other kinds of infections. So what I've done is I'm, I've been in my house uh, for about six days alone with no real contact in person, but I am staying in touch with friends via the phone. Um, I am Skyping to my cousin in Norway and my niece in uh, Japan. And so that is how I'm staying socially involved. But the other thing is I'm looking at this time and I'm thinking, I've got some things that I can do with this time. Because normally I'm teaching classes for a senior program at the university. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and dive in and write my second book. Great. Hey, good for you. So take advantage of the um, lack of distraction, so to speak. Yeah. But it's still really important to stay in contact. So I'm on the phone, you know, several times a day with different friends. If I need supplies or something, I know I have people that can get me stuff if I shouldn't go out and go to the store. Yeah. I could have the store deliver. So... You know, even the pharmacy, when I walked in there, they said, what are you doing in here? And they said, you know, I got home and they called me and they said, we're delivering your medications to your house from now on. So, you know, it's everybody's kind of looking out for people. And um, and I think that that is one of the things that we really need to do in this country right now. Jeanette, I appreciate your call, and we wish you the best. Good luck with that that second book that you're undertaking. Dr. Lisa Gibbs of UC Irvine School of Medicine, your, your thoughts about Jeanette's approach? I think she has a wonderful approach, a very positive outlook. In fact, this is the time to pick up old hobbies or to start the puzzle that has been sitting in your closet, um, you know, playing musical instruments. Um, I think it's wonderful that she's teaching classes, and I, I would hope that, you know, in time, maybe some of these classes could could be offered online as well. Um, so I think as we continue to adapt to the situation, we'll find more and more ways of staying in touch. Um, also, I wanted to mention, you know, a lot of community resources are out there, community-based organizations such as Meals on Wheels, um, you know, other organizations that really focus on senior care and senior isolation are um, available, uh, and seniors should definitely, you know, make sure that, that they know those resources and, and call them because they will be a tremendous help as well. One of the things that I, I think is challenging for people is, 
you know, sitting in front of the television or listening to news all day, and you're constantly getting the latest updates on COVID-19 and new restrictions, and then an hour or two later, more restrictions are announced, and the, the number of people diagnosed with it, you know, goes up. It's very stressful for people to be hanging on that continuously. What's your advice for people to limit some of that exposure? I completely agree with you. I think that that is anxiety provoking for most people. Um, you know, already when we have social uh, risk for social isolation, we have risk for worsening symptoms for depression and anxiety. Uh, and so I wholeheartedly agree that people should not be listening to the news uh, 24-7. And instead, I would have a trusted source, which could be, you know, your city government, your county government, um, maybe just check in once or twice a day to see if there are any changes. Uh, but constantly having this reminder about, um, about you know, these, this crisis or these issues is really not going to help anyone's mental health. Um, at this point, and we'll just falsely, I think, um, you know, a lot of times we hear this news with a lot of emotion. I don't, I think we just need, again, to just focus on one trusted source uh, and then just focus on taking care of ourselves the rest of the day. We're talking with gerontologist uh, and family uh, practice physician, Dr. Lisa Gibbs. She's clinical professor of family medicine at UC Irvine School of Medicine. She's chief of the geriatrics and gerontology division at the med school. We're talking about older Angelinos and the challenge of engaging in social distancing and the importance of that not becoming social isolation. Distancing good, isolation bad. It's so important for all of us to have social connections and and the ability to engage in something that has value and has meaning. Louise in Huntington Beach says, I play tennis three times a week with a group of seniors, and we're not going to stop because that keeps us healthy. Dr. Gibbs, uh, they're outdoors, of course, and would be able to keep a distance playing tennis. What do you think about that? Actually, I think that's one of the, the better ways to, to be outdoors and engaged. So, again, if you can keep your distance, um, I, I would en- encourage uh, folks to, to bring sanitizer or, you know, the, the at least the 70% alcohol that you can wipe your hands with. Uh, because as you, I think we just need to be very aware of, of what we're uh, touching in community, you know, spaces. Um, such as the doors to the tennis courts. Um, I would certainly use sanitizer, you know, when I came back into my car and into my house. So, But, uh, but otherwise, I think staying active, playing tennis, uh, not getting too close to our, our tennis partners, you know, is, is a very good way to keep active and healthy. I want to thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Lisa Gibbs of UC Irvine School of Medicine. Let me share a couple more listener comments. Veronica in Mar Vista says, I'm supposed to isolate as much as possible because of my age, but I was sick with a bad cold January, February. I'm burned out on staying home. But I did start watching stand-up comedy on YouTube and listening to comedy podcasts. I'm finding it incredibly diverting. That's Veronica in Mar Vista. And Robert in Newport Beach says, I'm undergoing chemotherapy for cancer, and my wife has an autoimmune disease. So we have appointments at a cancer center twice weekly. For us, it's not practical to stay in. 
We're wearing a mask and we're trying to stay away from crowds as much as possible. That's Robert in Newport Beach. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. COVID-19 and politics coming up in just 90 seconds. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. If you're a parent of a school-age kid, your life has changed dramatically, I'm sure, with having your children at home. Uh, certainly the case as well for parents of college students. Uh, our Desmond uh, came home on Friday evening and will be with us for the foreseeable future. And certainly, you know, one loves to have your, your uh, college-age student with you. It's great great pleasure, but also feel badly for all the students whose lives have been disrupted as a result of this and who are so enjoying their experience at, at college or K-12 through kids for whom uh, this has created a great deal of uncertainty around their education. Let me just update you on a few things that are happening uh, with COVID-19 related news. Major League Baseball has pushed back opening day until mid-May at the earliest. That because of the new CDC recommendations for restricting events of more than 50 people for the next eight weeks. So Major League Baseball is going to adhere to that. The NFL you know, was planning this huge uh, uh, draft weekend series of events in Vegas. They were essentially going to take over the town. Um, but it appears that the draft will take place uh, April 23rd through 25th, but under a modified format that still be worked out. So it would be televised, but it's not clear where they're going to do it, whether it'll be Vegas or another location. And it's not going to be a public event except for being televised. Uh, so it will not be an in-person event as as the draft has typically been done. Yet another huge jo- blow for Vegas um, where a number of hotels are closing. My, my brother-in-law is a captain at Picasso there at, at Bellagio, and, and they're closing their doors tomorrow, as are all the MGM properties. And it's certainly thrown people into turmoil uh, who work in the hospitality business there. We're going to have more news as well coming from a uh, news conference. The federal government is doing daily now. We'll have it for you live, NPR's coverage of the news conference at 1230, less than an hour from now. Uh, and it's thought that President Trump may be joining Vice President Pence, who is the point person for the federal response to COVID-19. So we'll be carrying that for you live at 1230 right here on 89.3. Want to talk about what happened last night with the Democratic candidates debate. Obviously, two of them that are left, uh, Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. They moved the debate uh, from Phoenix. It was going to be a public debate. Then it wasn't public and then it wasn't even in Arizona as they uh, moved it to Washington, D.C. One of the back and forth points had to do with how the country's health care system might look differently um, with either uh, Sanders or Biden president amid the coronavirus uh, crisis. And here's how the two men took this on. Right now, by making sure that no one has to pay for treatment, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for whatever drugs are needed, period, because of the crisis. No one has to pay for hospitalization because of the crisis, period. 
That is a national emergency, and that's how it's handled. It is not working in Italy right now, and well, they have a single-payer system. Well, and uh, Sanders uh, talked about how the current system exposes American weaknesses. We got thousands of private insurance plans. That is not a system that is prepared to provide health care to all people. In a good year, without the epidemic, we're losing up to 60,000 people who die every year because they don't get to a doctor on time. And clearly this crisis is only making a bad situation worse. Joining us is Matt Barreto, UCLA professor of political science and Chicano studies and co-founder of the research and polling firm Latino Decisions. Matt, thank you for uh, joining us. Uh, what for you were the biggest takeaways from last night's debate? Well, I certainly do think that the healthcare system is going to come under sharp focus moving forward. We've already seen a lot of strain on our healthcare system, and the United States is just beginning uh, to really deal with the patients in the hospitals and ERs. So that will continue to be a focus, and I think the Democrats would be wise to keep the focus on that. It was an issue that they ran on in 2018 quite effectively. The second issue will be what is the national economic fallout of this crisis. Uh, the stock market continues to be down today, forecasts of a recession coming by midsummer, and whether or not the Democratic Party positions itself as having solutions on that issue I think will certainly be important, and you heard both Sanders and Biden talking about that last night. So really, this crisis shifts the focus. We're going to be talking even more about health care and even more about the national economy here over the next eight or nine months until um, Election Day. Were, were you struck, Matt, with here you have the fact, you know, two guys who were pushing 80 who were up there when people 65 and older are being told, you know, to, to pretty much uh, avoid being out in the world. And here are these two guys running for president. And of course, you know, President Trump, also an older American, strike you as ironic? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we had a specific question about that last night in the debate where the moderator asked him, now, what are you two personally doing about this to keep your health safe? It is certainly a risk. We've been hearing from epidemiologists and doctors all week that people should not be taking risks. They need to sort of stay at home. And here you have uh, two candidates in their upper 70s. And um, I think it raises a lot of questions for people. And so I think the candidates themselves need to be safe and the need to demonstrate, including the president of the United States, need to be demonstrating sort of best practices to the American public, because if we are to stop this, it is going to take a lot of containment uh, strategy, and hopefully the candidates themselves will continue to do online and digital broadcasts, but really cancel all their sorts of um, events. And of course, we have an election tomorrow in four important states. So it really will be a test to see what happens with this virus as a backdrop. And it's hard to imagine, particularly with Florida and Arizona, two states with significant older populations, that this wouldn't have some effect on turnout. Matt, um, what do you think about that? Well, that's definitely an important question. Um, both states have early voting, and so voting is already underway in both states for the last two weeks, and we've seen a lot of ballots come in. But now you have the CDC recommending you know, no crowds of over 50. Um, not only do you have a lot of elderly voters in both Arizona and Florida, both very popular retirement states, but the poll workers, the people who are going to be there interfacing with these voters who come in on Election Day are oftentimes themselves of retirement age and have the time to do that. So I think it raises a lot of risks. I think people need to be very safe. These two elections, as well as Ohio and Illinois, are so far down the stretch 
that they probably need to go forward tomorrow. So many people have already voted. But I do think it raises questions about what to do with future states. You don't want to be putting people at risk and coming in large crowds. Think about some of those pictures we saw, Larry, here in Los Angeles, these huge crowds of people waiting in line for hours to vote. Um, You really don't want to have that situation against this backdrop of a health pandemic. All right. We're talking with UCLA professor of political science, Matt Barreto. We also welcome to Air Talk longtime Republican political consultant based in Denver, Dick Wadhams. He's the chairman of, he was the chairman, excuse me, of Colorado's Republican Party uh, from 2007 to 2011. Dick, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you, Larry. Nice to be with you. Uh, let me start with you. First of all, the the effect of, um, you know, in the midst of COVID-19, having these four primaries tomorrow, how do you think it'll play out? Well, I agree with Matt. I think they they have to go forward with the primaries. I, I don't think the results will be any different than what we've seen the past uh, couple of weeks. I think Biden is going to continue to roll up his delegate majorities and and uh, by and and. and and put a lock on this nomination. But I think last night at the debate, uh, de- hopes that uh, it would be a kumbaya moment with uh, Biden from uh, S- uh, Senator Sanders, that uh, he would basically kind of buckle under and accept the reality of a Biden nomination and kind of roll his his campaign into the Biden operation, I think uh, didn't happen. And I think that... Uh, uh, Sanders indicated last night he's going to continue to push Biden to the left. Uh, and frankly, I think Biden is pretty compliant. He wants to go there so he can uh, keep uh, uh, Sanders on the sideline in terms of, of uh, really trying to win this nomination from this point forward. We have some breaking news from the San Francisco Bay Area. This is according to the San Francisco Chronicle, who said they were given an advanced um, uh, release about this. Six San Francisco Bay Area counties are expected to announce a shelter-in-place order for all residents. That announcement is expected to be made at 1 o'clock this afternoon, directing everyone to stay inside their homes and away from others as much as possible for the next three weeks. This is public health officials try desperately to curb the spread of coronavirus across the San Francisco Bay Area. Again, this is according to the San Francisco Chronicle that there's an expected one o'clock announcement of this. Um, and apparently there was an embargo on it that was, according to the Chronicle, broken by a San Francisco area television station. The counties involved are San Francisco, Santa Clara, San Mateo, Marin, Contra Costa, and Alameda counties. Now, that's 6.7 million people in the San Francisco Bay Area. So, again, this coming at this point from the San Francisco Chronicle. We have not seen this story move yet on the Associated Press. We'll be keeping you alerted to this uh, as details uh, continue. Uh, this, according to the Chronicle, they received an early embargoed release of this and that the formal announcement would be coming at one this afternoon. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. We'll be back in just one minute. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. We're talking about COVID-19 and its effect 
on politics. We're talking with a Republican uh, political consultant Dick Wadhams, who's based in Denver, and UCLA political scientist Professor Matt Barreto with us as well. We're talking about the effects of COVID-19 on uh, the political process. Matt, were you surprised that there wasn't more alignment between the two candidates at last night's debate and and that Bernie Sanders um, was as confrontational with Joe Biden as he was? Well, I think it was an interesting debate because there was no audience and there were no other candidates. So we really got to see the two um, candidates go toe-to-toe with each other, and that provided more opportunity for them to just discuss and, and debate each other. Uh, at some points, the moderators were no longer even prodding them with questions. They would just say, your response. And, and so it encouraged that exchange. And um, I think Sanders was looking at it as really his last opportunity, not perhaps to win the nomination, but to get his issues on the table. And I think he did an effective job of that. I think he continued to push very hard for his issues, um, there's probably not going to be another debate after this. And so really, it was his last chance. And, and now we'll see the results tomorrow. And it'll probably just be a matter of sort of negotiations and back and forth. So I wasn't really surprised. Sanders is still in it. He's still debating very vigorously. Uh, but next steps is what I'm looking forward to, to seeing how much um, reconciliation there is moving forward. Yeah, because there was certainly nothing in the debate last night. Bernie Sanders asking for his supporters to, you know, particularly enthusiastically get behind the party's nominee. Yes, he mentioned it, but Dick Wadhams, it didn't seem to me like his heart was particularly in it. What did you think? I, I agree. I think that uh, reality has, uh, has sunk in for for Bernie, and he understands he's not going to be the nominee. But I also think that he still sees himself playing a big role in the Democratic Party. Uh, I think back, Larry, to um, uh, Ted Kennedy's speech at the 1980 National Democratic Convention um, that uh, that I think was terribly significant um, in that nomination fight between he and Jimmy Carter. And I think that I think that Bernie will probably want to have a key speaking role at the Democratic National Convention, and I think he will also want to have a big role, a big hand in the selection of a vice pre- vice presidential nominee. Uh, vice President Biden promised to select a woman last night. I think that uh, Bernie will want to be there to um, help him determine which woman will be on the ticket. Speaking of which, let's listen to uh, what Joe Biden said uh, during the debate about his VP. If I'm elected president, my, my cabinet, my administration will look like the country. And I commit that I will, in fact, appoint a, I'll pick a woman to be vice president. There are a number of women who are qualified to be president tomorrow. I would pick a woman to be my vice president. We had speculated that he almost certainly would pick a woman. But uh, Matt Barreto, what's the significance of him uh, committing to that during this debate? Well, I thought it was definitely significant, as well as his commitment to put a black woman on the Supreme Court, um, demonstrating the importance of not only the female vote overall to Democrats, but black women in particular to Democrats. And so I think a lot of people suspected this was likely, but it was important for him to come out and state that. And now it really starts the scramble for really the long list of potential qualified vice presidential candidates, it should create some more energy and momentum. Um, Biden certainly is a candidate that needs to create energy and momentum. 
Um, and I thought it was a good move by him to, to declare that. All right. Uh, we also have news. Los Angeles Times reporting that actor Idris Elba uh, tested positive for COVID-19. He said he didn't have any symptoms whatsoever. I don't know whether he was tested because he'd been in contact with someone uh, who would test positive for uh, COVID-19. But actress Idris Elba has tested positive for the coronavirus, uh, even though symptom free. We're talking with political analyst Dick Wadhams, longtime Republican. Republican political consultant Matt Barreto is UCLA professor of political science and Chicano studies joining us on Air Talk. So we're going to have tomorrow these four state primaries in addition to Arizona and Florida that we're talking about, Illinois and Ohio. Dick, what um, what are the significance of the results that we see in these four states? How how will that factor into the general election strength of the Democratic nominee? Well, I think certainly in uh, Arizona and Florida, uh, it will it will play a role. Can can Biden continue to reach into those uh, suburban voters that uh, were so uh, instrumental in his victories uh, last week? Uh, those voters are swing voters. If he if they continue to move towards uh, the Democratic Party and away from Trump, uh, Ohio, I think, is fairly solid for Trump, and Illinois is definitely a Democratic state. So important to watch what happens in Arizona and Florida with suburban, especially suburban women. All right. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for being with us. That's Dick Wadhams, longtime Republican political consultant, and Matt Barreto, UCLA, professor of political science and Chicano studies. Uh, Coming up, Fresh Air with Terry Gross. Octavia Spencer is going to be Terry's guest coming up. And then at 1230, we'll take you to Washington for the press briefing with Vice President Mike Pence. And there is a chance that uh, President Trump will be part of that press briefing on COVID-19 will have NPR's anchored coverage. I do want to take this last minute, though, to ask you for your financial support for AirTalk on KPCC. We suspended our listener on Air Drive, our member drive, so that we could bring you this detailed coverage of COVID-19. But we've got to raise a million dollars by the end of this week, and we are barely a third of the way toward where we need to be. I ask you, please to click and join at kpcc.org or call us at 866-888-5722. We can't possibly break away from programming at this important time to fundraising as we typically do. But it is absolutely essential that we hear from you right now. Our need goes on at this moment. Please click and join kpcc.org or call 866-888-5722. Be safe. Our thoughts are with you throughout the rest of the day. I'm back with you tomorrow morning at 10 on Air Talk.